Well, Patty, I don't know about you, but that was actually one of the most practical episodes I think we've ever done. I really enjoyed that one. I really did. I think all around everything from the interview, from what you did, and of course, what we learned in the Insider's Report, there's some real, what we used to say in the old day, days, actionable information in this episode, folks. Yeah, so we start out with Josh Holden, who is building a local team right now, local ISO. Mm -hmm. We talk about the challenges of that, tons and tons of practical information about how he's scaling a team. Yes, really um, practical, good, good. He's really, he was so open with us. I was very, yeah, it was very uh, transparent. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I talk about outside capital and just kind of a crash course on how to get money. If you need money, you need to grow your business. How, you know, when should you get debt? When should you get equity? Right. Um, Different things like that. So I talk about that. And then Patty, talk about this kind of almost, uh, I mean, it's, it's can't, you can't call it breaking news because it won't happen for so long, but it was, it's really, I think, very interesting for our audience. It's a very a interesting bit. thing on the horizon with the Federal Trade Commission wanting to basically regulate surcharging and cash discounting. And, you know, remains to be seen if it's going to happen, but uh, yeah. definitely listen to this and be aware of it. And if possible, you know, the more comments the federal trade commission gets, right. The better. Yeah. The better. Well, and I should also mention because Josh actually does a fantastic plug for our training during this, but yes, he did, I, didn't he, he? I, yeah, I, he's not, I'm not paying him. He's not paying me. This is a, this is not one of those, right? So this is a, just a, a friend in the industry and talking about building a team. So uh, none of that going on with that being said, this episode is brought to you by Nativia banking. You can learn more at nativia.com slash ISO, ISO. Uh, so check that out. And uh, with that being said, let's dive into the interview. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Josh Holden. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Doing fantastic. Oh, fantastic, Josh. So nice to have you here with us today. Thank, Thank you, for, you for having us. me on. Yeah. So we actually had Josh on a little while back. And it's been a while, right? Yeah. It has. I really enjoyed the interview. And so Josh has been scaling up a local team of agents. And we were just, he and I were talking about some of the challenges that you face with a local team with this new kind of era of payments and all the complexity around integrated payments and point of sale and everything else. So we thought, let's dive into that and talk about some of those challenges. But before we do that, Josh, for those that maybe missed the last one, give us a short version of who you are and how you got into this crazy industry. Well, thank you for having me on. So my name is Josh Holden. I've been in the industry since 2010. I started off at Wells Fargo Bank, worked there for probably about four to five years. Uh, then I moved over to First Data directly. So I was in their mid-market department uh, where I handled accounts that were probably around a million to $150 million a year in, in annual processing. From there, I went to Heartland and became a regional manager covered uh san diego for them for probably six months to a year and i just wanted That's to get out of that kind of stuff i wanted to do it on my own so i i linked up with card connect um who at that time was ignite and i started my own agency about six years ago and since then we've scaled we've got 11 employees that work for us um we handle probably right around 500 clients we do about 40, $42 million a month in annual credit card processing. So uh, yeah, we've just been trying to scale and move up and up. Love it. That's awesome. Well, so so we're going to dive into these challenges. And I think this is so cool because I know a huge uh, portion of our audience faces these challenges where they're trying to build that local team. Yeah. And it's gotten pretty hard. I got to be honest. There are some challenges uh, with it. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with recruiting. So you're bringing on, you're, you know, you're interviewing, bringing on new agents. Talk about that process a little bit and specifically what are you looking for? What is your ideal candidate? Do they have industry experience? Do they not? Like, what are you looking for in this recruiting process? Great question. Um, 
we've done both, right? So we've hired on people with experience and I find people with experience, obviously they know the industry, right? So they know what they should be, what they want to get paid. A lot of times I feel like they want to get paid more than what we can offer them. They could go directly to an agency and be their own agent. Um, So we primarily focus on new people. So we look for people who have sales experience. We do look for younger people um, because it does take in this industry a little bit of time to get your portfolio up and running. So uh, we work like right now on on our staff, we have two people that used to work at AT AT&T. They're on our staff. They're doing really well. We have a server. We just hired our first real estate agent. That was kind of interesting. I hadn't ever got anybody from that industry. Um, And that person has been with us for probably... 30 days now, they've already got two or three accounts under their belt. So that one is, you know, surprisingly working out pretty well, but right. we focus on salespeople just so we can kind of get that part out of the way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like sure. That. So once you get an agent on board or a new agent, say the yeah. new, say the new real estate agent, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Once you get them on board, what kind of training do you run them through? And, and what does the timeline look like in terms of, you know, from when they first get on board to go out into the field? Great question. Uh, Great question. I think for me, that was like the biggest like aha moment. Like when Uh I first started, I was trying to figure out how do you get people on board? How do you train them? I know I have other friends out there who they just hire people and say, go out there and find business. I find training is the most important part. So we've Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time trying to develop training and James, we use your program. So uh, (laughs) it's been extremely helpful for us because the video training that they can get uh, through what you guys offer um, Mm -hmm. kind of speeds up the process and it eliminates me from having to be in a classroom with them the whole time. So I would tell you our first uh, week is all of your guys's videos. We try to get them through uh, like the first uh, week program that you guys have on there. We have them take notes on everything. We have them write down questions. And a lot of the reason we have them do that is because I want to understand how they think, how they process information. So Mm -hmm. we'll send them home at night and say, here's your homework for the night. Watch this videos, uh, write questions down, come back to the office. And then we'll go through what they, what they learned the night before. Mm-hmm. And so that we can kind of get an idea and, you know, mold and train, train them on how we do things and how we process, but use your guys' platform to do that. And then after about the first week, that's when we start to try to get them out in the field, try to get them used to talking to customers and clients and things like that. So do you take them out in the field with a, with a partner? Or do you just send them out? Well, your- uh, first, probably first month they're out with a partner. Yeah, like okay. we really, we want them to tag along with other people. We want them to kind of learn the, the lingo in merchant services alone is right. something that it takes time to yeah. pick up on and sure. thinking. So we have them out there with them. We'll divide them up. So usually maybe like the first half of the day they're with a partner. And then the second half we'll have them go out on their own. But uh-huh. with our new agents, we don't stress as much of the like selling or closing of the deal. We stress a lot of statements. And then also what kind of equipment out there do you see? Like, I feel like if you can start to learn what equipment people have, then you can start to piece together. How can I make this? How can I get this account to work for the, for what we offer? Right. 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 Um, It's funny. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard the saying, but like, I feel like our industry is fitting a square peg in a round hole. Like you're trying to go out there and not everything we can integrate with, not everything like, you know, nowadays, so you're trying to still figure out how to get the deal and just getting uh, people comfortable with doing that stuff. Yeah, sure. 
Well, you yeah. mentioned about getting statements, which I think maybe kind of answers this question, but I'll, I'm going to pose it to you anyway. Because yeah. one, once you get them trained and out in the field, you know, what's the pitch like? What are they actually doing? And also so, what kind of requirements, you know, in terms of prospecting, you know, um, you know, what are you expecting them to do? I mean, you're obviously not expecting them to close the deal right away, obviously, yeah. you know, so how does that all, how does that all work? I would say, so for our reps, first thing first is when they go out, we ask them to get four pieces of information. We want them to get the POS system. So uh -huh. find out what they're, what the client's using. And you don't even need to talk to anybody really to, to kind of no. see that, right? When you walk right, into a right. place. Um, second, get the business owner's name, get comfortable to asking, Hey, who the business owner is, who owns this place, find out when the business owner is in, if they're not currently in, uh -huh. and then if you can really push, try to find out who they process with. If okay. you can get those four pieces of information, we can have a, a pretty successful follow-up to that conversation next time we go in. So we really gear on that part. So you basically have them get that, that information, come back, and then you kind of train them what to do in yeah. the next call? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I know there's reps out there. I, I mean, and I'm sure there's a lot of successful reps out there who are like one time, like trying to close people on the spot. Right. Sure. I don't really train that way. I feel like, you know, like I want you to get comfortable talking to people, get those four pieces of information. Let's get a follow-up. Let's mm -hmm. get a, another appointment. Let's get statements. Um, let's go through that whole process. So we really focus on those things. Um, uh -huh. One of the big things we ask all our reps to get is a follow-up appointment. Like, Hey, right. when's the next time I could come in? If I don't hear from you in a week, is it okay to follow up with you after that? Like always asking for those kind of uh, questions to set that next appointment, I think is big. And it doesn't look like a surprise when you show up either. Right. And I mean, I would imagine, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, you could also say, okay, so I'll come back on Friday, next Friday, unless that's a problem, right? Yes, right? absolutely. I mean, yeah. Setting yeah. expectations is great. And again, going back to one of the question you asked, like, what is our expectations for the reps? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say that first month, we expect five statements from our, from our new hires. And it usually that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, we just want them to get comfortable. I want to be able to go through a few statements with them, uh -huh. analyze them, right. uh -huh. read them, show them what we're looking at. So that first month is really like five statements. And I always, I mean, I don't know what everybody else's closing percentage is, but if I can get five, I feel like we're about an 80% conversion rate if we get the statement. So, you know, they should get, you know, three or four deals under their belt. Um, and we can start moving forward with that. Yeah. Yeah. I like cool. it. Cool. So, so, you know, zooming out a little bit here, um, one of the big issues of course is cash flow. A lot yes. of people are like, well, I don't want to build an inside team because then it's going to cost me all this money. So I guess two questions. One is, I know you can't give us specifics here because these are active employees, but like high level, what kind of comp is this like salary plus bonuses? Is it straight commission? How's that part of it? And then what are you doing to kind of minimize cash burn so that, you know, it, this model doesn't just throw off like massive losses. Yeah. Right. So I, great question. I struggle with that with everybody else, right? Like every, like that's something that we're, it's I think always trying thing, to, right? You're constantly yeah, you're tweaking the model. Constantly right? tweaking it. Yeah. Um, I could tell you, I spent my first three to four years by myself. So I built up a bunch of reserves and residuals to know, all right, now it's time for me to expand. Right. I'm going to have to eat some cost. I know that thing, <laughs> right. but that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about getting statements, right? Sure. Right. I know if we can go out there and close some deals within those first 30 days, right. I can afford to keep these people on board. 
We do set goals for all of them. Once they get past 90 days, they have to do uh, at least four deals a quarter. If they don't, then they're off the team. So um, I don't four think that's a quarter too, is not, it's not too much. That's what I'm all. saying. Like, really? even if you did it part-time, that's not that much, but sure. we do get people who don't. And then we keep the account. So it allows me to hire more people on. Sure. Um, sure. And then also we've expanded. I've got, I do have W2 employees. Um, we have uh, an installer on our team. So I, I mean, right. that's another cash flow. but everybody on the team brings deals. I mean, I think if you're in this world and people find out, oh, you work in credit card processing, right? Like, you know, we all bring things to the table. So right. I haven't struggled as much as I, I did in the beginning with it because now we're at like 11 deep and people are bringing stuff in and, right. you know, the residuals are there. So. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting because like, you know, one of the things that I don't really talk about very much on the podcast is like, you have to look at the financing a little different. There's, there's always these two different problems you're solving for. And I think people get them confused. One problem you're solving for is organizational value, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, you know, well, we're going to bring on, you know, let's say they bring on five deals, right? Well, yeah. what is the actual value to the organization of those deals? Well, if each deal is bringing in, let's just make the math easy. Each deal is bringing a hundred dollars a month in, in margin for the company, right? Yeah. So that's $500 a month in new recurring revenue. Well, you can easily get, let's say a 30 X if you have a large organization. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, that's a lot of money. That's what's at 15,000 or something like that. I mean, that's, that's a decent amount, you know, that you, that you have going there. Right. So, Absolutely. so I think, yeah. Right. So I think the idea would be when you look at that and you're like, well, that, you know, I paid, you know, 9,000 in payroll, but I actually got 15,000 worth of portfolio. Mm -hmm. That's a good ROI. Right. And what the question is, then you have a separate issue which is the yeah. cash flow. Right. Right. Because you didn't yes. get 15,000. You only mm -hmm. got a you probably, you probably, probably cost you money because you had to buy a yes. terminal. You had to pay oh, your yes. dollar. Right. So, mm -hmm. but you, you know, you got to treat these issues differently, right? It's like, okay, you need to get an SBA 7A loan or you need to have residuals to cover that. It's like, that was a good ROI investment, but just where do you get the money? But those two things are different. I think people yeah. get those confused where it's like, I'm burning cash. Is that good or bad? Well, I don't know. What are you, it depends. what are you yeah. getting in exchange for your cash burn? Are you getting yes. value or are you not? Right. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, for me, I didn't, I, I didn't, I haven't got any loans. I haven't done any of that. Um, I, I really spent the first, like, like I said, four or five years of building it myself. So it, it's allowed me to bring new people on, right. um, sure. to, to expand and then to, to be able to burn through some of that cash knowing, all right, the next month, the residuals are coming it's not like we sell a new product. I don't sell pencils and I have to go every month. I have to figure out how to sell 50 pencils. Like, right. right. No, I get, I know what my residuals are every right. single month. So I, I, that's how I can project that out. Forward. Yeah. I can project yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I will say it's interesting because I do the same thing as you know, I mean, I bootstrapped all of my businesses right now. And yeah. one thing I will say, it's an interesting danger of it. I think people generally think that you're more careful with your own money. I've actually <laughs> found that to not be true. I, I built businesses <laughs> yeah. both ways. And sometimes I'm almost like, ah, I've got the cash flow to do this. Like, why should I stress myself out? Right. I'm sure we're doing fine. Yes. <laughs> you know, and then my, yes. <laughs> right. And then my I'm finance my person budget. is like, why are you spending money on this? And it's like, oh, yes. wait, I forgot about that. You know what I mean? I was doing my budgets today and that's uh, that conversation went through my head. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas like when I had outside capital before other companies I built, you know, then you have an investor breathing down your neck and their, uh -huh. and their finance team and they're going, Hey, what, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Let's see your PL oh, yeah. every, every three weeks. You know, you're like, Oh, so I, it's, it can, be, it has its pros and cons, I think. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah. So, okay. So, so let's zoom back into the details for, for one other question I have here. Yeah. So I want to talk for a minute about targeting and this is a little sticky because I talk a lot about verticalization and, you know, and, and again, maybe I think I maybe talk about that too much. It really, the idea to me is focus, focus, mm -hmm. right? So whether that's a vertical, whether that's a particular solution you're selling or a feature mm -hmm. set or whatever, right. But, but right. you know, it's very difficult with a local team because you got to go see everybody. So yes. how do you handle the targeting of who they're going to go to? And how does that fit into that larger context of like training them on the various solutions they're going to need to offer out there? So for uh, us, targeting is more of like, what industry experience do you have before you came on board? So okay. if you're someone who okay. worked in uh, as a server, okay, you know how the flow of a restaurant works. So when you go there, right. not only could you talk about credit card processing, but you could talk about how we can maybe, you know, make your business more efficient like, through different, you know, POS systems or products or whatever. So I try to have them, you know, stick in the industries that they came from. Again, our real estate agent, she's bringing on like, you know, interior designers, like uh, granite countertops places and things like that. So she's comfortable in that industry to talk about mm. those products. So I would say when they first come on, we keep them in the industries that they're familiar with. So that's been able to speed up the process and make yeah, it easier sure. for them to talk about the those industries. Um, I don't really tell people what demographic or like what area to concentrate on. So like if you're in this city, stay only in this city. Um, I could say we hire specifically for cities. So like someone from oh, okay. a certain area where like, this is where we're trying to get someone. So they're not right. going to venture from home too much, you know? So okay. I, I would say we're, we're targeted when we hire, but when they come on board, I try to keep them in the industries that they're comfortable with. And then we kind of expand out. Now we, we do hire people. I have one person on my team who's never had a job in their life. Like it's their first job they've ever had. Right. It's been a fun experience. I mean, to train yeah. someone from beginning to the, I mean, not even close to the end, but like on sales right, and then right. also have yeah. to talk about merchant services. We right. keep them in the small, like the SMB world, like, all right, coffee shops, you know, dry cleaners, like, like anything that where the business owner is probably in the building itself. Like we yeah. really say, Hey, go and see as many of these people as you can. So, yeah. I mean, it, again, we're, you know, experimenting, we're pivoting, we're, we're yeah. changing the way we do things constantly, but it seems yeah. to be working. Our, our, our reps do fairly well out here. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe over time, like a rep like that, a lot of times when they start out and just kind of go to everybody, I feel like within 90 days, they usually kind of get a feel for like, <clears throat> wow, I really yes. like these three verticals. Like I seem mm -hmm. to resonate well and right. And then you're like, yeah. okay, great. This is what so, I feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And a lot of times it'll, it's, it's like almost happenstance. Sometimes it's like the first three deals they close happen to be auto repair shops. Right. Yeah. And then they're right. like, oh man, I love auto repair shops. I can sell these people. And you're like, all right, they're great. All excited. Yes. Leverage that confidence. Mm -hmm. Go to every, here's a list of every auto repair shop within 30 miles. Good luck. You know? Yes. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, that's funny. Um, okay. Last question I have for you. I'm going to throw you a curveball here. So you've been, you know, you've been building this team out for a while. If you could go mm -hmm. back in time to before you hired your first person and you were doing it all by yourself to where you're at today, what's the one thing you wish you knew back then that you didn't? In terms of hiring people or just the business itself? Yeah, the, or what, what it. the business itself. What's, what's the Any biggest, it, yeah. like, what's the biggest challenge that you face where you're like, man, if only I would have known this when I started, it wouldn't have been as much of a challenge. So that's a, a great question. Um, I have multiple answers for it, but uh, I would say first things first, I didn't realize how important marketing was in merchant services. 
I started probably four months ago, really diving into Instagram and things like that, like the different social media platforms that are free. So I would tell anybody, get on them. They're free doing podcasts like this. Like I get so many referrals now through uh, social media that I I didn't know, like people in different states, areas, things like that. I would say I would have started that a whole lot quicker especially yeah. for the ROI on it because it is free. Right. Um, I would have started that immediately. But when it comes to hiring people, um, I'm sure most business owners do this, but I started with myself. So I was the salesperson. Mm-hmm. My first hi- hire after me was not another sales rep. It was an IT person. I needed to eliminate right. things off of my plate, like the sure. late night calls, the sure. going to do the installs, going to, you know, customer service. Right. I had to eliminate those things. So that was very important for my success and speeding it up was, okay, let me stick in the lane that I'm really, really good at. And then let me still make sure my clients get the attention they need and the customer service they need from someone who specifically just does that. That was a big help. And I would have done that again. Well, yeah. And I think, I think to build off of that, I love that you said that because what I think people misunderstand is you're not going to go out there and hire people like you. You're, mm-hmm. they, they, they're not out. It, somebody like you started their own business. They don't want to work for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are you giving them? These people you're hiring are not you. So yeah. they have to have a platform, a foundation. You can't bring them in and say, hey, I built this thing all by myself. I get up every morning. I go out. I do all the installs. I do all the service. I do everything. Uh-huh. I do all the marketing. You should go do the same thing. And they're like, yeah. Yeah. then why would I work for you? <laughs> yes. Right? So instead you come in and you solve the problems first of, okay, we have our installation person. We have our customer Mm -hmm. service person. I did the same thing with my first local ISO because by the time you bring that first agent in, you're like, let me show you how we do things. Yes. And and guess what? That person also is massively less likely to potentially leave the organization. They have a loyalty to the organization, not only because of maybe the culture, but also because there's a a little bit of a healthy dependency on, Mm -hmm. hey, Josh has figured this out. For me, yeah. that's great. That's something I don't have to figure out. So I'm being successful based on what he's already given me mm-hmm. in this foundation. And there's that loyalty and that buy-in. And that's what you have to have in your culture. If you don't, well, then what are you doing? You try to get, you're trying 100%. to get a bunch of entrepreneurs together. Good luck. <laughs> you're hurting cats the rest of your life. Yeah, no, 100%. Yes. And it does make it easier to bring people on board when you do have those things in place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. All right, so so before we go, and this has been so insightful, that's actually been one of my favorite episodes. I love these conversations because I think we spend so much time talking about all the high-level strategy stuff in the industry that a lot of times it can get lost on like, what does this actually mean, you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. when you're out selling and, and you're building a team? So I love that. Um, yeah. I, you know, people out there that are listening to this are like, wow, Josh seems awesome. I'd love to connect with them. What would you tell them to do? Hey, if you can connect with me, I'm on Instagram at Josh. I'm on TikTok at HTV Josh, on LinkedIn at Josh Holden. Um, and then my last one is, um, oh, uh, HTV Josh uh, on Twitter. So if awesome. you find me on any one of those, I love to talk. Um, since our last podcast, I've been having people in the industry reach out. And that's great. I just love the communication. I think the more, more we support each other, the better oh, yeah. everybody does. I agree. I love it. I love it. Josh, thank you so much for taking your time today and sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. So, Patty, really quick, want to talk about Nativia Banking, the sponsor of this episode. Mm -hmm. You can learn more by going to nativia.com slash banking. It's kind of just the general banking one. If you want to learn about the reseller program to earn residuals, go to nativia.com slash ISO. Um, 
So it was so interesting is right before this, <clears throat> I had to update my payment method in with one of my the business services that we use. Right, right. So I pulled Been doing up, that all week, by the way. But <laughs> there you go. So I pulled up the Nativia app on my phone here. And we use Nativia Banking for run all of our business operations uh -huh, now. Uh -huh. And I went over and just scrolled over to my card. I have a virtual card in there. Right. Um, put that information in, saved it. We were up, able to update that payment method. And now my finance person, when she is categorizing things, she knows exactly what that is. It's yeah. James. Isn't that sweet? Card. You know That's what I mean? It's just so sweet. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's really what I love is the simplicity of the financial management aspects of it. It is. Yes. That's a yeah. big thing. It's, it, it keeps it really simple, keeps it well organized. So mm -hmm. for those of you that are building an ISO, you know, one of the things it'd be great to have a bank that actually understands what you're doing yeah. <laughs> as an yeah. ISO, that you're not competing with them and all of that. And so obviously, you know, Vlad at Nativia and his team, I mean, they understand the ISO world inside and out are very, very yes, well connected and known. Right. The okay. best thing to do is to get your ISO to use Nativia banking just for your own banking services to manage your know, bill yes. payments and all of that sort of thing. So head over to nativia.com slash ISO, ISO, so nativia.com slash ISO, check it out. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field, with James Shepard. Hey, everybody. Today, I want to talk to you about outside capital. All right. So um, I thought it would be actually an interesting follow-up because Josh, you know, and I were just talking about how we don't leverage outside capital. Right. right? No, and I, I shouldn't say that. I do. I leverage debt um, in some of my subsidiary companies and things like that. But um, what I want to talk about today is how to actually get outside capital. So um, I have built two really pretty big companies leveraging outside capital, sold both of them. And that's the reason I don't need outside capital today. Um, and so many of you are in that position and you're in, in your situation where you have this ambition and you need more capital to grow more quickly. <clears throat> and what I want to talk to you about today is cash flow, collateral, and growth. Okay? okay. These are the three things you have to offer in exchange for outside capital. And depending on which thing you have, is going to determine what type of outside capital you should get. All right. So this is going to be like the the five minute crash course in outside capital to help you start thinking about this. So whenever I I'm thinking about a deal, I was working on a deal today. I was telling Patty that that you know totally fell apart. Epic fail. Right. <laughs> it wasn't right. my deal, fortunately, but I was consulting on one. Um, and a lot of it is is because of some of these things where you know the outside capital just wasn't wasn't quite there the way we needed to be there. So why does this happen? Because there's a lack of Cash flow, collateral, growth. These are three things. So let me talk about these real quick. First of all, if you have cash flow, but no collateral, and you don't have meteoric growth, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a solid business. And I'm describing many of you. Many of you need to hear what I'm about to say. Trust me, just listen to this. Like if you have 50000 a month in residual, right? And right. you don't really have any collateral. You don't own like a building or inventory or anything like that. But you've got 50000 a month and you're like, I want to grow, but I don't necessarily want to use all of my own money, right? right? Well, then you need to be starting to think about something like an SBA loan, mm -hmm. okay? 
An SBA 7A loan is an example, which you could probably get from your local bank. It is a pain in the neck to get it. It'll take you like six months or so to get it and lots of due diligence and stuff. But it's nothing that's, I mean, it's like a little bit annoying. It's very time consuming and annoying, right. but it's not like hard to get the money. And the reason that works is because the government actually collateralizes the loan. Right. So the government says, hey, if they default, we'll cover up to 80%. That's usually how it works. Um, and so as a result, the bank is much more willing to do the financing uh, right. for you. Um, now, there's, again, there's all these requirements because it's a government SBA thing. You have to do all these different things. But what I love about that one is you give up basically zero control. Um, you know, All you have to do is make your payments on time. The, the money is fairly inexpensive as outside capital goes, yeah, yeah. right? And you can get up to right. $5 million. But again, right. it's all predicated on cash flow. So the more cash flow you have, the more you can get. Now, you still have to justify and say, here's what I want to use the money for, which is going to be growth, right? No, but like growth is like, you have to be, it's growth. Like you're using it for growth. If you go to them and say, I just want the money, they're going to say no. Yeah, man, I'm not right. going to happen. But, yeah. but again, it's not difficult to get that. If you have any kind of growth plan in mind that requires less than $5 million and you have cash flow to support the debt payments, check into an SBA 7A loan. You'd probably be surprised at how easy it would be to get something like that. Um, I got one recently for one of our subsidiaries where it's structured as a um, a line of credit and it mm -hmm. just builds over time. We don't have to draw on it, but we can. And so there, there's different structures or you can get all up front. There's different ways to do it. So that's cash flow, right? So if you have cash flow, but no collateral and you need a smaller amount of money, right? Then you want to think about uh, uh, an SBA type loan. If right. you have cash flow and collateral, so you're a large business, right. you've got some infrastructure, you've got some assets, and you have a significant amount of, of cash flow, well, now you have a lot of different options, right? You could go a commercial lending. So you could get a commercial loan. There's, I look at it as there's two different types of commercial lending. You kind of have the first one, which is more traditional where you're mm -hmm. borrowing the money and there's a set, usually a 10 year, right. five to 10 year period of time. And it's an actual monthly amortized payment where you pay it off in 10 years or five years. Um, the other kind is where it's more of a bridge loan to your next capital raise Yeah, right. and you pay just interest only. And then at the end, you pay a balloon pay payment, the, right? all the principal back. So obviously you're not gonna be able to afford to do that. So when it comes at that point, you have to time it. So you're like, okay, well now we're bringing on investors or mm -hmm. we're getting a new round of debt or whatever right. to refinance it. Somehow so, you have to come up with that. Yeah. That balloon payment, which is very common. And it's very common for those types of banks to actually do the refinance themselves mm -hmm. and say, well, you're coming up on your balloon payment. We'll... Let's go for another five years. You know, right, so that, right. that happens all the time. So you have that type of debt. You also have private equity at that point, right? So if you have, if you have, you know, let's say a, at least two to $3 million a year in EBITDA, uh, which uh -huh. is just call that cash flow. Let's just call that cash flow, but cash flow, not including things like taxes or interest expense or right. things like that. If you look at your cash flow relative to just what the operation is producing, um, <clears throat> you can be sure there's a private equity firm out there somewhere. You just got to find the right one that, that deals with your mm -hmm. industry where they would be more than happy to, you know, buy your company and, and take your future EBITDA right. um, and, and cut you in on that. So that's private equity. Um, now, what if you have neither cash flow nor cap or nor collateral? So okay. you're you're newer, right? You're building. Well, right. guess what? You're now looking for investors. Right. Now you might be looking for investors when you have cash flow and, and collateral, but you don't, you know, again, you, you, generally investors are going to be the most expensive form of capital. Correct. Yeah. It, right. it, it doesn't seem like they are because it doesn't cost you any cash flow. So it feels yeah. great. But the problem is you're losing this forever future value of your company. Right. And so it's it's very expensive from that perspective. So generally, if you can get debt, people tend to go that direction rather than investors. But if you don't have cash flow, you're not going to get 
uh, a loan. If you don't have collateral, you're only going to be able to get like a, an SBA loan. If you don't have collateral or cash flow, like you're not getting any debt. So I can just save right. you some time there. There is something now that they'll, you know, they'll call venture capital. Um, there's things like pipe.com and other companies where they, they loan you money based on, you know, like a receivables type of loan. So there mm -hmm. are a few options out there, but it's not right. fantastic. Yeah. So generally you're looking at investors. What investors want is growth. So yes. remember investors, ultimately what they really want is they want cash flow. Right. So they understand you don't have cash flow now, but, but are you going to have, have cash it. flow in the future? Right. Right. It could be five years from now. could be three right. years from now. could be two years from now. But what they want to see is growth. So your mm -hmm. company is valued at X today. What's it going to be valued at in you know five years? Right. And that's going to be predicated on that growth that you're going to achieve, growth in revenue, growth in sales, and you know, these types of things. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you want to go to investors, you have to understand the pitch you need to make to an investor is that you have a big plan right. to see significant growth. And and ideally, ideally, that growth is something where these assumptions that underlie your plan are somewhat fleshed out and proven. That's what I was just going to say. You have to really show them what the plan is and how it's going to work. Yeah. Well, and, and even show them how it is working today, mm -hmm. right? right? So people really miss you know, they, they don't understand that like for an investor, it's like there's a huge difference to an investor between a company with 20 customers mm -hmm. and a company with zero. Right. So a lot of people are like, oh man, well, what, what difference does it make? Like, I'm not going to sell anybody till I get an investor because what well, we're going to sell five or six customers. Yeah. yeah. Because even five or six customers. May, that's means a, that you're doing something. You're doing something. And it means you actually have the product and services that right. you're going to be selling right. built out. And, you know, because guess what? The, and what investors know is, is there's a ton of variables that you're never going to know about until you actually go do the thing. Mm -hmm. And even mm -hmm. if you only do the thing 20 times or 10 times, you're going to learn things. And when and an investor can tell that, you know what you're talking about, right? Right. They're going to ask you these questions and you're going to be like having no idea what to say mm -hmm. unless you built it out. So like, you know, for, for me, I would never try to get an investor until I had something going. I'll tell you the other thing too, to keep in mind, the earlier you bring an investor in, the less valuable your company is. And so the greater percentage you're going to give up, uh -huh. right? If you sure. can actually build something, and again, I'm not talking about building something huge, but just you get some customers, you get some momentum. Right. Get, get the foundation. Yeah, prove your assumptions. When you give mm -hmm. this plan to the investors, oh, we're going to grow to $47 million a year in revenue in three years. And they're like, okay, well, how are you going to do that? Well, yeah. we're going to sell auto repair shops on software. Okay, well, what kind of what kind of software do they want? What features do they want? Right. Well, we don't know yet. We didn't build it. It's like, okay, no. Like, but if instead you say, well, here are the 10 features that our current customers have found most useful. Mm -hmm. And here are the 15 that they've requested that we want to build once we get your money. Right. Right. And you have a plan. That's a that different conversation. Right. right. And right. and it's like, okay, you sold a few people. You know, you sold 10 or 15. Right. What was their experience like? And you're like, well, I'll be honest. The first three were kind of a disaster, you know, because we didn't know about this and this and this, but now we do know. So mm -hmm. we hired somebody to handle that. You know, like, those are the conversations investors want to have because when they invest their money, they want to know all of these assumptions that you've made that you're pitching them. That they they want to know that you've proven. Yes, yeah, you, you've validated exactly. them, right. and it's okay. You know, it, what investors hate is, is, in my experience, when I talk, I have a lot of friends who invest in businesses all the time, uh -huh. and and I do as well. It's like you know, when somebody comes to me and says, "I have this fantastic plan," and I'm like, "Tell me all the things that either have gone wrong or you think are going to go wrong." Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what are you worried about? And when somebody says, right. 
I'm not worried about anything. <laughs> then <laughs> not, you got a problem. You're not getting yeah. any investor capital because- you to get my capital, right? Uh, uh, yeah, a, a successful entrepreneur is literally worried about everything. People mm -hmm. think entrepreneurs are like we're immune to stress. Are you kidding me? Like yeah. when yeah. you're starting a business, you're literally, a good entrepreneur is like, I assume that everything is going to fall apart. And mm -hmm. if I feel like I'm confident with something, then I just assume that confidence is totally unfounded and it's going right. to fall apart. Like that's what a good Always entrepreneur- Always assume the worst and yes. be happy with the best. Right. You assume the worst and then you fix it and you make right. changes and you make improvements. So anyway, all that to say, when you go to investors, you got to have growth. That's what investors want to see. And they want right. to see assumptions that have been validated. So you may not have a lot of money, but think about not in terms of how much can we build before investors, but what assumptions can we validate so that when we go to the investors, we can say, we have proof that mm -hmm. we that we have proof that people do want what we have to offer. Right, right, right? right. We have proof that we can sign people up. We have proof we can sell people. We have proof that we can generate leads at a certain cost. Right. Whatever the core assumptions are of your plan, try to think of ways to very inexpensively to prove those assumptions before you go to the investor. So here's your crash course today on Outside Capital. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So James, there's a proposed rule out of the Federal Trade Commission that could have real consequences for surcharging and other dual pricing um, yes. programs. The proposal addresses what the commission designates as, quote, unfair or deceptive fees that inflate the total cost of goods and services. This is all part of a Biden administration program to, to uh, chip away at junk fees. Yep. You know, the FTC first announced that it had the idea of, a, they, you know, in regulatory terms, you have an announcement of that you're thinking about doing a regulation. Then right. you propose the regulation. Right. And, you know, each of those steps has comments and then you come out with a regulation. Right. So last year they said, hey, we're thinking about this. And uh, but there was no mention of payment processing fees in that notice. Right. However, the commission says it received a lot of complaints from consumers regarding credit card processing fees. Here's just a couple of them. Quote, every day I'm lured into a transaction, told I'm going to pay one price only to have it raised by a large percentage at checkout due to fees that are non-negotiable or part of processing. Another one, it's difficult to uneat a meal if you disagree with these fees. Um, <laughs> and right. the FTC actually went into this whole thing about that, like in particular at a restaurant, you know, they find out they can pay less with the cash, but there's no access to cash. I'm thinking to myself, perfect right. reason to have an ATM, ATM. in your restaurant. Right. Um, but um so anyway, the FTC said it takes issues with these ancillary with ancillary goods or services. These are offered a consumer as part of a transaction, but may be mandatory or optional. For example, the FTC wrote, quote, if a business includes a fee, the consumer cannot reasonably avoid to process the payment for any good or service. Such payment processing would be a mandatory ancillary service. Hmm. So now, clear and conspicuous disclosures of the nature and purpose of any additional cost before a payment is rendered would seem to prevent um, a merchant from running afoul of the FTC, but that that could be a real headache for restaurants in particular. Right. right. Now, I, I reached out to Jonathan Razzi, who we've spoken to numerous times on the, on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. He's an expert on surcharging. Um, 
he didn't seem that concerned. He told me there's going to be a lot of pushback. Okay. And um, that, you know, it takes a long time before one of these things becomes final, was sort right. of how he put it to me. Right. I also turned to an economist at the Regulatory Studies Program at George Washington University. Okay. The reason I turned to this woman is that she used to be the chief economist at the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. So I thought, you know, I, I, I sent her an email and I said, seems to me that this proposed rule could have an impact right. on credit card surcharging and so forth. Uh, she noted that um, as her, she read the proposal, it only mentions surcharging and cash discounting in reference to restaurants. I'm not convinced of that entirely, but that was where the bulk of the mention was right. in, in the document. Um, but she said, but since the rule would cover the entire economy, it seems the practice could be affected everywhere. She hmm. added that the proposal is quite vague on implementation. Hmm. She said, quote, it seems like the practices would not necessarily be banned, but at this point, there's no guidance on what disclosures would be, be required. Right. Uh, yeah, I I took, a, I took a quick look at it. I, I You know, I didn't take a deep dive, but it, it's, it felt to me like maybe the end result would be adding a bit more teeth to the disclosure stuff. That's And that's what Jonathan said to me as well, that he thought would be the outcome. Um, because, you know, there was something else I wondered about how this is going to play out, because, you know, the fact is, is that credit card surcharging is expressly permitted under the laws of like 48 states. Right. Right. Um, just Massachusetts, Connecticut and Puerto Rico uh, prohibited. And then, of course, the Durban Amendment includes a provision that legitimizes offering discounts for a seller's preferred payment method. Right. Um, now, I do think. And I think the people that are going to be the most hurt and the people who are making the most noise about this are the restaurant and is the in the people in the restaurant right. industry. Right. Because um, uh, they're not only going to have to disclose hard processing fees, but other surcharges like those for large parties for, right. you know, delivery, uh, delivery. There's another one. Um, a lot of restaurants in Washington, D.C., for example, are charging a fee. I was at a, out with to dinner with some friends. There, there's a fee. For the wait staff, because they now have to be paid minimum wage. Right, right. So there's like a fee for that, you know, and um, it's just, you know, it, it kind of restaurant fees have gotten a little bit out of control. Yeah. Um, and the National Restaurant Association has said that the typical restaurant would need to spend over $4,800 to redo menus to include all the newly required disclosures. Wow. Um, and the government suggested the government... The, the group rather suggested that the government should focus on other junk fees like those charged for event ticket seller, you know, by event ticket sellers, right. airlines and hotels, which really were the areas that the Biden administration was most focused yeah. on when it came out against junk fees. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when Biden was giving that speech and he was going through it. I would kind of get this sick feeling in my stomach because. I mm -hmm. was just waiting. He was so close. I thought he was about to say about credit card surcharges or something yeah. about like it was, it, I mean, it was very, it was very comprehensive. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, I, I definitely feel like the FTC, I certainly don't feel like they would be out of line relative to the Biden administration directive to Correct. go after surcharging and all that. And so, I mean, obviously I disagree with that, but you know, cause I think you know, we have free speech rights and all that I do. But again, I think the end result will be, a fairly meaningless 
reiteration of the disclosures that are already being required. Uh, it's I just going to, it's just yeah. going to add the, that federal law, that, that teeth to it. So it's kind of like, yeah. And you know, visa saying you, you should do it, but now like you have to do it. It's the well, that's what I was just going to say. It's sort of like, it's almost like, you know, to visa's advantage because visa wants right. everybody to do right. this. Now the government's saying you have to do it. Yeah, you know, the, the the it's funny because like the biggest threat I could see from it would be that Visa could actually latch on to the FTC ruling as justification to say, oh, well, now the FTC, like you can't surcharge mm. or you can't whatever. That Maybe not that extreme, but you know what I'm saying? They could really try to. Yeah. Right. They, and ride yeah, that. They train. can play that to their advantage for sure. For sure. And they might, oh, we don't want to we don't want anybody to go afoul of the FTC rules. So we're going to back the, the FTC here and say no more of this or, you know, I and you also remember something. the FTC has been like, you know, been looking very closely at Visa MasterCard for other reasons. Right. You sure. know, like the debit pricing and the routing right. and so forth. Right. So I could, you know, yeah, it's not a totally out of character for Visa MasterCard to say, hey, you know what? We're going to we're going to side with the FTC on this one. Right, and right. We're going to actually go the extra mile because yeah, we that's show right. how, yeah. you know. <laughs> we want to be so compliant that there is no question, right? Right, so, right. Yeah, right. I, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, again, I, I think that's a, I think that's a possible but unlikely scenario. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the most likely scenario again is that we get disclosure laws with with some teeth to it. But ah, we'll and see I how think it turns out. That, you know, most people are disclosing, and I think the issue right. here is the restaurants. I it mean, is because they just can't the, disclose. I mean, it's too difficult. And the, too difficult. I mean, they could, but it's just I don't know. It'd be very like they say with the menus. The menus would have to look almost like a legal document in some ways. It'd be and who's going to read the disclosures on a menu? You it's, know, exactly. I mean, it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. So, well, what's a, any, any idea timeline? If you had to guess on this, Patty, what are we talking about? Another year before this app, you know, like, Oh, I'd say, I'd say at least a year. Okay. Like the, the, the comment period on the, on the proposal is um, up in January. Okay. So it's, it would take them at least nine months to go through all the comments and come up with a formulated a formula. thing. Okay. Okay. But by that time you're in the fall of 2024, which is election season. Right. I, I'd say it'd be 2025. Yeah, that's okay. All right. I don't think you're going to have something this controversial come right. out during that an quickly. election. Right. It, right. It's, too, it's too quick. I mean, the, and the FTC... They move slow. Oh, God. They, they're so laboriously slow in everything they yeah. do, you know? Yeah. I mean... Right. They got every... Which isn't the worst I, thing, I feel like, you know, for... It's like, yeah. it, it's a lot harder to undo a regulation once it's there. So I'm glad that I wholeheartedly agreed on taking your time yeah. and doing regulations. Yeah. yeah, I've been around long enough to see regulations that were railroaded through and took forever to disassemble. Right. So, yeah. Well, Patty, definitely keep us in the loop on this one. I think it's super interesting. So I appreciate yeah. the update. Sure is. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.